Welcome back, everyone, once again to the Dr. Treefruit and Friends podcast. My name is Don Seifert with Penn State Extension. I have with me Dr. Carrie Peter, Dr. Treefruit. Say hi, Carrie. Hello. And once again, Dr. Rob Crassweller. Say hi, Rob. Good afternoon. Great. So it is uh, Tuesday, not Monday, like we normally record on. It's Tuesday, May 26, 2020. So, Rob, you had a couple good points to lead us into things. Is it still thinning season as of right now in, well, in Pennsylvania? Depends where you are in the state. Uh, I suspect down in uh, your area, Berks County and further east or Montgomery, and you're probably, if you're not doing it right now, you probably finished it. I would think, Carrie, you guys probably put thinners on already at Figureville, right? Yes, that's correct. Yeah. Uh, I was out this morning looking at Rock Springs we're in central Pennsylvania, and uh, I've got some that might use it, some Ida Red and uh, some Liberty, which are not really big varieties, but they're probably our biggest varieties, and they could be thin probably today or tomorrow. Most of the other stuff is not quite ready. We're more maybe eight to nine millimeters. We're looking to make a thinner application around 10 to 12 millimeters. So probably by the end of this week, I'll be into it. And... Uh, I just did a, a carbohydrate fruit thinning model run this morning, and uh, we finally got full bloom up in northeast Pennsylvania, up in Scott Township, up uh, in Lackaw above Lackawanna, and uh, they finally went to bloom last Thursday, and so they're not anywhere near it. In the same way, probably up in Erie County, and anybody up in the northern tier. So, you know, it depends, again, sort separation north to south, there's going to be differences there. Yeah, that makes sense. Could you explain the carbohydrate thinning model for people who might not be as familiar with it? Okay. Uh, the carbohydrate thinning model is something that Alan Laxo and Terrence Robinson up at Cornell developed over a number of years. And what it is, it's based on uh, work that Alan did many, many years ago, looking at measuring photosynthesis and growth and trying to develop a model about how much carbohydrate, which is the food, the sugar that produced in photosynthesis, how much is produced and that is based on the fact that they think if there's a deficit, if you don't have enough food, more fruit's going to drop. And so consequently, what they do is they measure how much carbohydrates produce. If they have an excess, that means it's going to be harder to thin fruit. It's not going to be as responsible, resp responsive to our chemical thinners. And so you need to increase your thinning rate, the combination of concentration of thinning you're doing. If there's too much uh, use or, or a deficit of carbohydrates, then what happens is the trees are more responsive because they're in a deficit. And so they don't have enough food to produce them and, and be able to maintain all the fruit. And therefore the fruit will drop easy. So you need to reduce your carbohydrate levels or your, your, your uh, concentrations of the growth regulators, thinners that you're applying. And so we run this model and we have weather stations located across the state and orchards and other places and it measures sunlight, it measures temperature, it measures your latitude, uh, and then it measures uh, you know, how much carbohydrates produce and determines how much is used up by the typical growth of a tree. And then it says, okay, what's the difference? If we have a surplus, we need to increase the chemical thinner rate. If we have a deficit, we need to reduce the chemical thinner rate. Thanks for that. I think that'll be very helpful for folks who aren't as familiar with that model. That'll give them a good lead into what that is and how that works. 
Last time we talked, it was May 4th, which doesn't feel like it was that long ago, but apparently it was. We had discussed potential crop load issues or whether or not we'd have a decent crop load. Uh, where are we at on estimation for crop loads around the state? That's kind of similar to what we are with uh, thinning, where the people down south in southeast Pennsylvania probably have a fairly good idea. Uh, whereas, like where I am, central Pennsylvania, who knows for certain? Although I do know I had some fruit. Uh, we had some frost there uh, back on April 17th, and then we had another bad series of frosts on the 9th of May, which was after our, our previous discussion. And I thought I was not going to have hardly anything. Again, out there today, it looks like we're going to have some fruit, but it's going to depend on where we are in our orchard. We have uh, several spots that have very little fruit and some spots that, are, that look pretty good. And it's interesting that the uh, area where we have uh, up in Fairbend Rock Springs, there's a gap uh, on the, the ridges behind us. And so there's this gap. And so the cold air can just come right down off the mountains into a part of our orchards. And that's where we have the least amount of fruit. Uh, I know that Jim Shoup did a uh, measurement back at the April 17th uh, frost, and he found differences based on elevation of, of the orchards. And so consequently, you know, the higher up they were, the less uh, frost damage they had, whereas the down lower, where cold air tends to settle, they had more damage down there. And so my orchards are pretty much all flat. And so what I'm seeing is really the effect of that gap in the mountains where that cold weather comes through. Very interesting, thanks. So I'm gonna take a minute and ask Carrie, last time we had talked, you would discuss Pseudomonas and ice nucleation proteins and everything that goes along with that pathogen. I've started to see a little bit of damage from that in the orchards. Is that something that we're going to be seeing in the next week or so? What's the lag time on, on infection and damage to when it shows up? I think it's shown up already. So I, I think it's, it's now. Uh, I've heard several reports across the region uh, in the, the Lancaster area. I had a big branch that from I was came from a cherry sweet cherry tree and all the blossoms had turned brown and were papery and it was classic the pseudomonas syringae pathovirus syringae infection or PSS so that is blossom blast we call that blossom blast and so it, it timed I mean that the timing was was very much coincided with that freeze event that we had on May 9th and uh, I would say usually within the two weeks of that freeze event, you know, we, we've seen it already. And, and unfortunately, I think it's catching some people off guard and they think it's new. But when you look at some of the damage, it's definitely has been there a, a little while, you know, more than a week or so. Um, I had another grower, um, Enterprise seems to be especially susceptible to this, especially it has shoot tip dieback. And it looks like every single shoot tip is affected. And it's, it's just, it looks like typical shoot blight that is, that manifests from fire blight, but it's not. It goes so far and it stops, uh, but it's unsightly looking. However, unlike fire blight, the tree is going to rebound and grow out of it. Um, so if people are seeing unusual, especially in the last week, seeing unusual, and so the week would be like from May 17th through the May 22nd. They see unusual dieback of, of tips, shoot tips, um, blossoms. That just doesn't make sense because we, we only had conditions for fire blight in the last week or so. 
Um, so all of this dieback, the shoot tip dieback and this blossom death is really relating, you know, going back to that May 9th uh, freeze event that we have. And it was, it was enough to do the damage. Um, but this is it. You know, the trees will grow out of it. It looks unsightly, but the trees will rebound. The pathogen won't grow or spread. Warm weather halts it in its tracks. Great. Thanks for that. Yeah, I had been called out uh, this past week to see some of that, and I had sent those photos to you, and I was wondering how common that would be at this point for uh, growers just across the across the board after that May 9th freeze event. So Yeah, I would say, you know, two weeks. I mean, what I saw on Friday, that had been there at least a week or so. Uh, so, you know, you, you're going to see that in a, in a short period of time. It's not going to be a month from now. So we were within that two-week time frame uh, from that freeze event. So if you got nabbed, if you got zapped by that pathogen, you've seen it. Um, so you'll be seeing, you've seen it already within the last few weeks. But like I said, it's not going to spread. It's going to stop in its tracks. You know, it's finally the, the warmer weather's here and, you know, this pathogen's not going to be a threat. And as far as the forecast is, is um, telling us is that I think we're finally done with old man winter. Well, that's good for everyone, though Rob's shaking his head no. Rob, what do you have to say about that? I think I'm I'm looking at some of the, again, the newer weather sites, and they're talking for mid-40s at the end of this week for lows. And uh, you're right, I'd like to turn the air conditioner on today, (laughs) but uh, we'll see. But with the 40s, that's, I don't believe that's going to be too much, um, of an issue for this pathogen, for the Pseudomonas pathogen. It's, it's when we get down to the, to the, basically the freeze mark is when you really worry about it. Um, so that, those are the temperatures I'm talking about. I don't think we're going to see the 30 to 32 degree, um, temps, uh, anymore for the, at least for this 2020 season. The damage, unfortunately, has already been done. Yeah, I would, I would agree. I'd just say that it's still unseasonably cool. Oh, yes. I looked at the long range. Yeah, it's going to be in the 60s and 40s by the end of the week or by the weekend. Yeah. So, Rob, you earlier when you mentioned things you might want to talk about on the podcast here today, you mentioned the NUA modeling and specifically the irrigation modeling. Would you like to talk a little bit about that now since you brought it up? Yeah, first of all, let's just mention what NUA is. NUA stands for Northeast Weather Applications Group. And it's a consortium of, uh, oh boy, about 20, 25 universities, all the Northeastern University, land-grant universities. Uh, we have uh, membership in uh, New Jersey, Ohio, uh, Pennsylvania, Virginia, and down in North Carolina. And what it is, it's a series, it's a website, it's www dot n-e-w-a nua at cornell dot edu and uh, what it is it, it, it has a series of weather stations across this whole region and you can go in there and look at uh, what the weather is and there's always a bunch of series of models in there for things like what Carrie does with, with uh, a fire blight and uh, and also with apple scab and she's talked about that before and then there's also insect growth models uh, what I have, of course, the interest is the horticulture models. And one of those is actually uh, apple, they call it evapotranspiration model. And again, based on the weather site at Rock Spring or wherever closest weather site you go, it can inve- estimate 
the evapotranspiration, how much water a tree or, or apple tree will use. And there's a couple of components to that. One is it has to be uh, know when your green tip date was, because that's when growth starts. And then the other uh, factors are how close your trees are spaced. In other words, what's the difference uh, distance in between rows and uh, distance between trees. And then that tells you how many trees per acre. And so you enter these back factors and you enter the age of the trees. And then what it'll do is you can hit it and it'll calculate how much evapotranspiration uh, the trees would have had. So that's how much water they've used. And the idea is that with the irrigation model is then you wanna only replace that which they've used. You don't need to necessarily overwater. So if you keep running this on a daily basis, you can put in, it takes into account what rainfall you have. And then if you turn on the irrigation system, which I have a trickle system in there now, you can say, okay, this gives you how much water uh, it used and how much you've replaced that. So for instance, I have a, a planting that's uh, spaced three feet in row by 13 feet. They were planted last year. So they're young plants, so they're two years old. And it goes through and it's measuring the water off of my uh, water precipitation and then evapotranspiration estimate uh, from those data. And then it says, okay, how much water you've used. And so if I have, uh, I've got one gallon per, uh, one gallon per emitter, uh, emitters there in the line, irrigation line. And so if I would run it eight hours, that means for that particular tree, I would put eight gallons of water back onto that tree to replace that water that was evaporated or that was transpired. And then what it does, it'll calculate how much it was used for evapotranspiration by the tree, how much I put in, and it'll tell me whether I have enough or, or deficit, if I, I need to add more water. And so basically it's just a way to kind of keep the trees uh, constantly watered and also they don't have any stress so they can continue to grow. That's really cool. I think that's super helpful for a lot of people. The last couple of years, we haven't been incredibly water stressed, but it's good to be able to have access to that and have that ability to track your water, water loss. Yeah, it's too early yet, but it's just something I thought I'd mention now. So people have an idea, they can they can go uh, a site to look at that and kind of get a feel for, are the trees under stress or, or do I need to irrigate? And how much do I need to irrigate? Sure. Carrie, is there anything that folks should be thinking about in the next two weeks, I'd say, probably until we record our next podcast? Well, the one thing that I want people to be mindful of is to not be complacent about the threat for fire blight mainly in big older trees that have had a history of fire blight that may have not had all of their cankers removed. So every year we will always see a type of shoot blight called canker blight that will always show up right on time, which is around mid, mid to late June. And what this is, it's a type of shoot blight that manifests as a result of, of leftover cankers in the trees. And so I, I usually call it shoot blight like the second version of, of the shoot blight. Your typical shoot blight, like shoot blight number one is your, you see the, you know, uh, a wilting shoot tip because there's an infection at the tip of the shoot. This type of shoot blight, you, you'll see the, um, the, the necrosis start at the base of the shoot going to the tip of the shoot. And what happens is that cankers uh, will grow, continue to grow during the season uh, such that the bacteria's constantly replicating in the tree at that region, at that living tissue that is bordering the dead tissue of, of that 
leftover canker. And the bacteria, it manipulates that vascular system quite well, um, meaning that it will move throughout the tree to growing areas. And oftentimes you may see what looks like water sprouts all of a sudden all have shoot blight. And this is all related. You can trace those, those, um, that shoot blight of those water sprouts back to a canker. And so folks have bigger, older trees. And these are those really, um, you know, either large semi-dwarf trees or larger processing trees. You want to be putting on Apogee if you already have it now to get it started in the tree. So the shoot, those growing shoots can be hardened off because that is the only way to limit this shoot blight is hardening off those shoots. If you allow this to go and not do anything and you decide to plant new orchards nearby, rest assured those new apple trees will get infected, especially if they are in the, the line of prevailing winds because those bigger trees that are producing the shoot blight, they may be able to survive just fine. However, they're producing a lot of bacteria and that bacteria will, can just seed epidemics. Um, within your orchard, especially in much younger trees. So it's very important to shut that down before it even starts. So even though we had a next to non-existent fire blight year for a lot of the state, unfortunately, I think the Northeast now, since they are experiencing bloom, is probably under greater threat than any part of the state ever during the bloom right now. Uh, Growers will want to make sure that they put on Apogee or, or Kudos, the prohexadiamine calcium, to harden off those shoots to limit that shoot growth in the tree. The other thing that growers want to be mindful of is, is we're getting into the summer cover sprays. Uh, so captan, regular captan sprays, if it's calling for a lot of rain in the forecast, think, think the summer of 2018, throw in a Topson M every once in a while with that captan because that captan is going to get washed off um, much easier than Topson M is during frequent rain events. So it's important to keep your trees protected and be mindful of rain washing off said fungicide because where we've gotten caught in the summer months is when growers um, have had all of their fungicides washed off due to frequent rain events. So just being mindful of the summer season. You may have done a great job for managing apple scab and you know cedar apple rust and powdery mildew, but we still have this summer season to contend with. And this is when you know other fruit rots and, and other issues can pop up. So it's important to, to still be mindful of those diseases. Great. Thanks. Thanks for that. Rob? Can I, can I ask you a question? Um, one of the things I was wondering about, I was out, like I said, this morning in the orchard, and I'm still getting a lot of secondary bloom. What's the potential there for fire blight? Oh, very good. <laughs> it's a lot of yeah. stuff. Yeah, I mean, it's a, that's a good question. Secondary bloom is still quite susceptible to fire blight. I know I've seen we had here at Freck hard cider varieties, Dabinet, which is notorious for having rat tail bloom. And I saw a blossom blight on Dabinet in late June. Uh, so if you do have any rat tail bloom or late bloom, it's important to get that covered somehow. It can be, um, you can use Quava copper. Um, it will be gentle enough. It shouldn't cause fruit finish issues. And I know that the use of lime sulfur has been used to drop blossoms. So Rob, I'm not sure as far as, as using a, you know, whatever, however lime sulfur has been used for blossom thinning, 
Um, this may be an option for dropping unnecessary blossoms later, but you have to be mindful of temperature because we all know that sulfur is very sensitive to temperature and causing fruit finish issues. So you probably wanna limit lime sulfur um, to varieties that aren't so susceptible to fruit finish problems. Uh, but yeah, that's, that's very tricky as far as being mindful of that rat tail bloom because yes, it, it still can be susceptible, unfortunately. Yeah, so I wouldn't put it on gold delicious then. Mm -mm. Or or ginger gold, I think, is another one that's that's kind of susceptible, that's sensitive. That's a great conversation about our extended bloom, and I think it's good for people to keep that in mind as things move forward. Any more final words of wisdom before we wrap things up? Forgot about stone fruit. <laughs> there we go. Yes, um, you know we get so wrapped up in apples, we, we forget about our peaches and our nectarines. So for growers that have peaches and nectarines that have survived the, the cold weather this year, we're finally in bacterial spot weather. Uh, it is warm, it's getting much warmer, the humidity is creeping up. So it's important to make sure that you maintain a tight spray interval for bacterial spot because you just need a couple days of really high humidity for the pathogen to explode. Now you may think, well, I don't have any fruit, so I can kind of forget about bacterial spot. No, that's not the, you, you, there's not a year you don't worry about bacterial spot because it can still affect the leaves. And if you don't have the fruit, you don't want to build up that pathogen for next year. So it's important to have some kind of management program to still keep that bacterial spot pathogen in check. You can use um, oxytetracycline, which comes as Fireline or Microshield, and you can rotate that with Regalia. You can rotate it with Serenade. You can rotate it with Double Nickel. Uh, but you want to make sure that you keep the bacterial spot on the leaves in check. Copper is not recommended for years where you don't have fruit. Um, this is research that comes out of Rutgers. They showed that copper doesn't really prevent bacterial spot cankers from, um, from still starting during years where there's no, no fruit. So they just said that, you know, just eliminate copper from the spray regime when you don't have any fruit on the trees, but still stick with Microshield or Fireline, Oxytetracycline. And I recommend throwing in, in a rotation of, of one of the back, one of the alternative products. Um, for brown rot these days, you don't have to worry about uh, spraying for brown rot if you don't have fruit in your trees. However, with that said, we do worry about opportunistic fungal pathogens that can take advantage of a compromised tree. And a tree that's lost its fruit is probably not the happiest tree out there right now. So I would recommend either doing occasional captan or sulfur sprays just to keep those opportunistic fungal pathogens at bay. Um, for fear of next year of them wreaking havoc because there has been instances in the south where they got hit with a, a really bad freeze in March, wiped out 85% of their crops and the growers just basically threw up their arms saying, well, I'm not going to worry about this now. And the following year, Cytospora canker really hit them very hard, as did bacterial spot. So you don't want to loosen up your your disease management your disease management regime on trees that don't have a crop you still need to be managing it the pathogen's still there and you want to be preventing for next year 
So what you do now is going to have a direct impact on what next year, what will happen next year. Thanks for that. I think that's good for folks to keep in mind. Rob, do you have anything else to add? I think that, you know, I, I opened up that thing about the rat tail blooms because I've got that. I wanted to make sure everybody knew about that because I'm sure there's a lot of it out there. Great. Thank you both. Uh, I think with that, we'll end our fourth episode of the podcast. Thanks, everyone.